Hey. Good, good. Oh, someone said blessed. Thank you. I received that. Well, my name is Sarah. Like Alan said, I'm the community life director here at Outer West Community Church, and it is a privilege and an honor to be here with you today, to be bringing the word of God. What a joy it is for me to be sharing what the Lord has put on my heart. Now, I got to admit, Today we're going to be talking about a pretty heavy topic. We're going to be talking about overcoming shame. But I believe that this word is going to be transformative to a lot of people here today. So guys, I got to tell you something. I'm human and I am no stranger to shame. That is nothing new. I bet we all have felt that way before as well. And the crazy thing about shame is it doesn't just, you know, wait for a certain age to show up. It just appears. See, I have a picture here. In a second, it'll come up on the screen. Um, and this is, oh gosh, this is a picture of me. And this is like around 2000, 2001. I was in the fifth grade in this picture. And, you know, even though I was just 11 years old in this picture, I was very much already acquainted with the negative and harmful emotion of shame. You know, I had an overall good experience in school. I had a lot of great friends. I am a millennial, so I talked about things that typical millennials would talk about in the year 2000, 2001. You know, I would debate which boy band was better, NSYNC or Backstreet Boys, and the obvious answer is Backstreet Boys. Oh, I heard of Backstreet Boys over there. I would talk about which B2K member I would marry. I would be excited with my friends about the original Disney Channel movie that was airing that night. I was saying Destiny's Child songs at recess. How many of you know Destiny's Child songs? Okay, okay, okay. Um, and then I would even talk about who would win the NBA finals that year? Would it be Kobe Bryant's Lakers or Allen Iverson's 76ers? And I so wanted it to be the 76ers because I was in love with Allen Iverson at the time. But here's the thing, guys. Even though I had this great experience as a child, I still dealt with the emotion of shame. And for me, it was harsh comments. And so when I grew up, I was in school and I would hear things like, man, you sure are dark-skinned. Or I would hear things like, you're pretty, but just for a dark-skinned girl. I would hear jokes like, man, if you turn off the light, you wouldn't be able to see Sarah. See, I started to internalize those comments. And for me, I knew that in and of myself, I felt like, because of those comments, I felt like I wasn't enough, that I wasn't worthwhile. So I knew that I had to do two things. And the first thing was this. I had determined that I was going to hide my true self. Because obviously, my true self wasn't worthwhile, wasn't good enough. And so I thought that I had to be like someone else. So I determined that I was going to blend in with the crowd. And then the next thing that I decided that I was going to do is I was going to be an achiever. Because if I achieved, if I excelled, if I was better than everyone else, then finally I will feel like I was worthwhile. And that was my MO for middle and high school as well. You know, it wasn't cool to achieve academically in middle and high school, but I sure was an achiever socially. I had friends. I was following the crowd. I just wanted to belong, and I did not want to be shamed by my classmates. And so I blended in. I carried that even on to college my freshman year. I wanted to have a typical fun uh, freshman experience, and so I did all the things with my friends. But reality came crashing down when I got my first set of grades. I mean, you don't have to raise your hand, but some of you know what I mean. 
I got my first set of grades. I got a D in my freshman math class. I had never done that before. You know, I was used to blending in in the crowd. I wasn't so much achieving academically in middle and high school, but I got by. But that D was a reality. It was a reality check for me. And even my best subject, which was English, I got a C minus in. See, the rules were different in college. So I saw people having fun, but they were also taking care of business. The stakes were higher. You were paying for your education now. And so I had determined that I was going to achieve again academically. And I had said to myself, I will become an A student, nothing less. Even an A minus was unacceptable. And you know what? Me being the goal-oriented person that I am, that's exactly what I became. I became an A student. I didn't get an A minus. I didn't get Bs. I was an A student because if I was anything below great, I felt shame. See, just like me, I bet there are some people here that have felt the same thing that I have felt. We're human. We all experience the negative and destructive emotion of shame. Some of you are here today and you may feel shame because of your background. Maybe you feel shame because of your past. Maybe you feel shame because of something that was out of your control, something that happened to you. Maybe you were a victim of abuse and you know that it wasn't your fault, but you still feel ashamed. You know, I bet that there are some people here today that maybe you're in your primetime years, is what I like to call it, and you feel like you wasted your youth and you're watching all your friends in their retirement take all of this, these fancy vacations and buy all these amazing things, and you feel like you squandered and wasted your youth and you feel ashamed of that. Maybe it's an addiction that you just can't break. Maybe it's a parenting choice or maybe it's shame in your marriage Either way, we are all affected by shame, and shame 100% has devastating effects on us. Shame affects pretty much every aspect of our life. You know, shame affects our self-image. When we experience emotion of shame, we have a low view of ourselves. I mean, think about it, guys. If I feel that I'm not good enough, I'm never going to go for my promotion. I'm never going to speak up in that board meeting. I'm never going to feel like I'm worthy to belong and worthy of love and worthy of care. It's destructive. Also, shame affects us in our relationships. See, when we feel shame, our tendency is to do what? It's to hide, it's to isolate ourselves, separating ourselves from good relationships, healthy relationships. Another way that shame affects us is in our culture. There's this great book, it's called 3D Gospel, and it talks about different worldviews across the world. And in our Western society, we tend to have a guilt-innocence worldview where we believe in right and wrong and the individual making the right choices. Whereas Eastern cultures, they believe in the community as a whole and they want to bring honor to their family. They have more of an honor-shame system. And if they do something to shame themselves or their family, it is absolutely destructive. And here's the thing, guys. This is very interesting because now, even in our Western society, we're slipping more into the shame-honor worldview with the rise of social media. I mean, how many of us have watched something online where someone was caught doing something super embarrassing and the video went viral? Or maybe they said something or did something and they were shamed by the public. We are slipping into a shame and honor system. 
Shame also affects us in our health. People who deal with chronic shame are more inclined to develop anxiety, depression, and social disorders. And it's not just for adults, no. Studies show that as early as 18 months, these toddlers are experiencing shame. We carry it in our physical bodies with poor posture, downcast eyes, and a lowered head. Shame affects us. You know, guys, I want to spend some time actually talking about what exactly is shame. And I think it's best if we talk about shame and we need to pair it with its cousin, which is guilt. Brene Brown, she's one of the leading voices in the study of shame. She has definitions for both guilt and shame. We're going to take a look at some of her definitions right now. This is what she says of guilt. She says this. She says that guilt is adaptive and helpful. It's holding something you've done or failed to do up against our values and feeling psychological discomfort. So she thinks that guilt can be helpful. You know, and it can it helps us to define our moral compass, right? If we feel bad about something, we can adapt our behavior and then we can make it right, we can rectify the situation. But this is what she says of shame. She says this, shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something we have experienced, done, or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. Did you catch the difference there? She shame is internal. I feel like I am not worthy of connection. I'm not worthy. I am absolutely flawed. To further this point, I have a graphic here that's going to help us also define shame and guilt. See, here we see in this graphic, it says this, and you can just go ahead and put it on the screen. See, it says guilt is I made a mistake, where shame is I am a mistake. You see the difference? We are internalizing when we feel the emotion of shame. Guilt is I failed at accomplishing this goal. Here, shame, it says I am a failure. Guilt is I did something bad, but shame says I am bad. Guilt is behavior-based, where shame is identity-based. Guilt is focused on the action, but shame is focused on the self. Shame could be harmful and devastating. Here's the thing, guys. I'm talking about guilt now. Guilt can actually be helpful for us, like Brene Brown mentioned. It can actually be helpful because it helps us to define a moral compass. It lets us know that we're human and we have empathy and the ability to feel the ability to distinguish between right and wrong, but shame can be harmful. It can keep us away from the plans that the Lord has for us, and he has good plans for us. How many of us know that today? He has good plans for you and I, but shame often leaves us stuck, crippled, feeling like we are not worthy to be associated with Christ. So what do we do about this problem? I spent a lot of time talking about shame and its harmful effects. What do we do? Well, I got good news today because we have the word of God and the word of God, it contains stories of hope and of redemption, of heartbreak, and yes, even shame. Many of you know uh, the story in the gospels of Jesus. And here's the thing about Jesus. He traveled the world with 12 of his closest friends and he shook things up. He turned the world upside down with his disciples. And one of his disciples, his name was Peter. And here's the thing about Peter. He's actually my favorite disciple. But Peter, he was often known for his impulsiveness. Peter was very passionate and he was very impulsive. 
Peter was the disciple that said things that everyone else was thinking. How many of you know someone like that? I know, I know a few people, a few of my friends like that. But Peter was like that. He was zealous for the Lord. And I love Peter's story. It's incredible because he had it, some of the highest of the highs as a human can experience, been a follower of Christ. But he also had some of the lowest of the lows moments. We're first introduced to Peter um, in the beginning of the Gospels. He is a fisherman by trade. Um, him and his brother, Andrew, they have a family business. And he's just a blue-collar worker, used to getting his hands dirty, used to just doing his thing in the boat. Peter is just a fisherman, or so it seems. Enters Jesus. He takes one look at Peter and he says, you, I want you to follow me. See, Peter, well, Jesus saw something in Peter. He saw his heart. He saw his purpose. He saw his potential, and he called his name. Now, this is extraordinary in this time because during that time, most teachers or rabbis, they wouldn't go out of their way to select students. It was a pretty competitive process. So the fact that Jesus called Peter and chose him is significant in and of itself. See, Jesus believed in Peter. He changed his name soon after meeting him to Peter. It was Simon before. And you know what he did? He called him Cephas. That's the Greek translation, and that means rock. This was to signify Peter's um, influence that he would have on the early church. Peter, he was pretty down for Jesus. And one of Jesus' last moments on earth, which we call the Last Supper, you know what Peter said? He said, Jesus... If the time comes, I will lay down my life for you. Oh, my gosh. Peter is so funny. But he genuinely believed that. He was willing to lay down his life for Jesus. Many of you know how the story goes. Jesus is betrayed by one of the 12. And where do we see Peter? The one who said, I would lay down my life for you. The one who stepped out of a boat and walked on water. The one who declared that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. Where do we see him? Well, he's denying Jesus. Jesus is arrested and convicted. He's humiliated. He is beaten. And Peter, when questioned, if he knew Jesus, he said, I don't know him. Not once. Not twice, but how many times, church? Three times. Three times Peter denied Jesus. Can you imagine his friend being a disciple of Jesus, witnessing firsthand the glory of God in a way that we can only dream of, being so close to Jesus, his friend, his teacher, and then to deny him three times. You know, I bet Peter felt such intense shame. If I was him, I would have felt unworthy to even be associated with Christ anymore. I would have felt like my mistake made me unworthy and irredeemable, unredeemable. He left Jesus when he needed him the most. And I bet we can all identify with Peter. Maybe you have walked through a moment or maybe you're walking through a season in your life now where you feel that shame, like you aren't worthy to be associated with Christ. You're probably thinking, why would he be connected with me when I lied? Why would he be connected with me when I cheated? Why would he be connected with me when I don't even have patience with my kids? I don't have patience with my spouse. How can God be in relationship and want to be in relationship with me. 
Here's the thing, guys. I'm a Bible nerd. I love the Bible. I love studying the Bible. And I believe that the Bible is instructional. A lot of times, seemingly small interactions can teach us about the heart and the nature of God. And so Jesus, he's crucified, he's beaten, he's spit on, he's humiliated. Peter denies Jesus three times. And then here in John 21 is where we're going to hang out and spend some time. This is the last chapter in the Gospel of John. And during that time, like I said, this is after Peter's denial. This is after Peter ran away from God in his shame. Here's the thing about Peter, what Peter did. He certainly felt guilt, right? Because his behavior wasn't consistent with being a loyal friend and a good student. But he felt shame. And his shame caused him to run away from his call. Just like we were first introduced to Peter in the boat, fishing, and Jesus came and saw him and called him, we see him right back where he started. He distanced himself from God because he didn't feel worthy enough to be associated with him. He left his calling in his shame. That is the context of John 21, the last chapter in the book of John. And here's the thing. We don't have time to read the whole chapter, but I encourage you to read this chapter because in it, it is instructional. It teaches us about the heart and the nature of God and how he deals with our shame. So here's the thing. Peter is there with the disciples. They're trying to catch fish. And, P- and John, and, sorry, not John. And Jesus is about to have a conversation with Peter. And I know what you're thinking. Because if I didn't already know the story, I would be thinking, oh, Jesus is about to get Peter. He's about to whip him into shape. He's about to light his behind up. Because you know what? He's supposed to be my friend. He's supposed to be my disciple. Oh, no, I already know what he's about to do. But we see something completely different in this text, and I just love it. So Jesus sees the 12, the people that literally abandoned him when they needed him the most. They help, he helps them catch fish. He has breakfast with them. And he says, hey, Peter, can I talk to you for a second? Can you imagine what Peter would have felt? I would have been shook if Jesus would have called me over because I knew I would have known, man, I denied him. I would have been so nervous. But you know what Jesus does? He says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's like, yes. He says, feed my lambs. He asked him again, Peter, do you love me? And he says, tend my sheep. He asked him a third time. He says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter is like, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And he says, feed my sheep. What's interesting is that, and you can help me with this, church, did Jesus bring up his denials during this time? No. We don't even hear about it. He doesn't even say anything about it. Instead, you know what he does He redirects Peter and refocuses Peter. He reestablishes him and his purpose and his call. And he reaffirms his identity and he does the same for us. See, Peter ran away out of his shame because he felt like he wasn't worthy to be associated with Christ because of his denial. But you know what Jesus did? He never ran away from Peter. Instead, he came to him. Not holding a magnifying glass over his sin. Not holding uh, him in regard to his mistakes. He didn't say, Peter, I can't trust you anymore. This is the moment that you had time to prove to me that you had what it takes. And you have shown me that you don't have what it takes. He didn't say, Peter, you're not good enough. You're not worthy enough. Go back to that boat because that's where you belong. You know what Jesus 
does, he redirects him. He refocuses him. See, Peter had work to do, and we have work to do. The Bible says that we were created for good works, which he had prepared, prepared in advance for us to do. And the same is with Peter. He had amazing things that was in store for his life, and he had to move beyond his shame, and Jesus helped him to do that so that he can do the work of God. Jesus' response was one of grace. He refocuses Peter. And you know what he tells him after those three things? He says, Peter, follow me. Follow me. He didn't say, Peter, man, first we got to get this done. First we got to get you, you got to earn my trust back, da, da, da. No, he had trusted Peter, he says, follow me. Today, I believe that the Spirit of the Lord wants you to just follow him. Moving beyond the shame, moving beyond the feelings, and taking it day by day under the umbrella of his love and of his grace. Alan mentioned before that I was a teacher for a number of years, and I love kids. I still love kids very much. I taught fifth grade. And um, here's the thing about teaching. Inevitably, even though they're just such joys and children are a gift to the world, they always do something wrong. Either they're called cheating, they're called lying, they just do stuff just, just terrible. And in our human nature, it's not just kids, it's us too. We try to cover up our mistakes. They would make excuses, they would lie, they would try to do all the things. But you know what? The crazy thing is that I wasn't looking to them and be like, man, I can't wait to expose their shame. I can't wait to get them. I can't wait to corner them. I don't want to be associated with a liar. I don't want to be associated with them. They're cheaters. You know what I was most concerned about? I was most concerned about reconciliation. And I believe that that's the heart of God for us as well. We see that in John 21 as he's talking to Peter. He is most concerned with Peter coming to him and following him day by day. God never ran away from Peter. Peter ran away from God because of his shame. See, the first humans, they also encountered shame um, and they encountered fa uh, failure as well. But what we see in the text is that it is consistent. God is consistent in his character and nature. Just like he is for you and I, just like he was for Peter, he was in the very beginning with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve lived in the perfect world but inevitably sin entered the world. And this is what the Bible says right after they ate of the forbidden tree and sin entered. This is what it says in Genesis 3, 7. It says this, Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves coverings. Guys, I want to focus on the second part of this verse where it says they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves coverings. You and I do the exact same thing. We do the exact same thing. We're not walking around with fig leaf covers. That would be weird in 2023. However, we make our own coverings, whether it's perfectionism, whether it's um, uh, people pleasing, whether it's through relationships, whether it's through making a lot of money, whether it's through power, we are always trying to cover up our shame, but it is insufficient. It is not enough. 
We see that even with the early humans and Adam and Eve, because after they made their fig coverings, you know what they did when they heard God walking in the garden? They hid behind a bush. It was insufficient, their fig coverings. And just like them, our coverings are insufficient. It's not enough. The end of uh, Genesis 3, we see God performing the first sacrifice in his love and his grace for Adam and Eve. He kills an animal and he uses the skin to cover them. And here's the thing, their tunics and skin, that animal skin was ripped off so that we can have a temporary sacrifice. But Jesus Christ, years later, would have the perfect sacrifice that is completely sufficient. It was completely enough to carry our shame. Just like that animal skin was ripped off, Christ's skin was ripped off on the cross. He dismantles our shame because he bared it on the cross. The parallels of the garden and the, um, the crucifixion are striking. See, Adam and Eve, they were naked and they were ashamed in their sin, but so was Christ hanging on the cross. He was completely exposed. He was completely bare on the cross. He was humiliated, beaten, spit on. Spit doesn't hurt, but it sure is humiliating. He bared the humiliation on the cross for you and I. He lost his earthly honor. I want to tell you this one truth. And this one truth, I never, ever want you to forget it. When I first became a Christian, I was listening to a sermon, and this woman said this, and I never forgot it. This one truth dismantles our shame for all time. And if you can't remember anything else I said today, I want you to remember this. We are the righteousness in God, in God through Christ Jesus. We are made righteous. What does righteousness mean? It literally means right. Shame says that you are wrong, that you're a failure, that you're a mistake, that you're unworthy of belonging. But Jesus, through the cross, bearing our shame, has already declared that we have been made righteous in his eyes. We are right. And nothing we can do can stop that. See, shame is going to rear an ugly head because we are human. It always does. But through the gospel of Christ, through the work of the cross, we have been declared righteous. And you know what? He did it so that we can live free from him, with him. Hey, man, you guys, you can obey that. You can obey that. But here's the thing, guys. How do we walk in freedom from shame? Well, I think we have three things that I'm going to talk about briefly. Um, and the band can come up during this time. These three things will help us to walk in freedom from shame. The first thing is this. We need to embrace vulnerability. We need to embrace vulnerability. That's very, very scary to do, I know. It's very scary. Because when we embrace vulnerability, we are opening up ourselves to be uncovered before God and before others. Brene Brown, she says this, shame loves secrecy. The most dangerous thing to do after a shame and experience is to hide or bury our story. When we bury our story, shame metastasizes. But then she says this, if we share a story with someone who responds with empathy and understanding, shame cannot survive. It's allowing ourselves to be bare and open for God and say, well, you know what? I don't have it all together, God. I'm not perfect. I'm flawed. But we are met with a compassionate God, just like Peter was when he was by the boat, when he left his call. The second thing is this. We embrace the truth. This was huge for me. 
as I was uh, on my journey of becoming free from shame, I had to learn not just to know the word of God, because I knew it, I'm a PK, I knew it, I knew the verses, but I didn't embrace it as truth. I had a mentor, he said, Sarah, you know the word, but I need you to understand that it is truth and embrace it as truth. And the moment that I started to embrace the word of God as true, my mind began to change. Everything began to shift. It's, not one, it's one thing to say, oh, I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, but it's another thing to actually believe it. So that when shame comes up, you can say, I've been declared righteous because Jesus bared my shame on the cross and it is sufficient. It is sufficient. So how we walk freedom from, uh, in freedom from shame is we embrace vulnerability, we embrace truth. And the last thing is this, we embrace our call. Peter left his call because he was ashamed of himself. He heard his friend. He forsook his God, his teacher. We see Jesus being compassionate and coming close to him. He didn't want Peter to be held back by his shame. He doesn't want you and I to be held back from our shame either. We have to keep moving forward every single day, even if it's hard, despite our feelings. And that is extremely hard to do. I know more than anyone. <laughs> it's so hard to do when your feelings are so strong. But to choose Christ every day to follow him, not giving in to the voice of shame, but saying, nope, I've been made right with him. You know, in the beginning of our time, I shared with you that um, I had struggled with shame my entire life. The year of 2020 was very transformative for me. Um, it was the year that the Lord began to speak to me about becoming free from shame. Just like most of you, I was in the house, and that was my worst nightmare because I'm a person that like to be on the go. I like to do things. But I was forced to sit in the house with my thoughts. And the Lord spoke to me one day. I was, I was sitting in my room. He said, Sarah, it's time to be free. And through that, he connected me with one of my greatest friends, one of my mentors. He uh, was my life coach. And he began to talk to me about embracing the truth of God's word in a unique and special way. So I would write affirmations and I would recite those affirmations over myself every single day, despite my feelings. And my feelings, were, oh boy, they were strong. But I would say the word over myself every single day. And when we do that in our brains, our minds begin to change. We actually start to believe it. And then the second thing is this. I uh, started to see a therapist and I started to process my emotions and those feelings of shame. And I found freedom within um, seeing a Christian therapist. See, in that time, God restored my hope. He lifted up my head and he showed me that he was sufficient to carry my shame. And church, he is sufficient to carry yours as well. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, I just thank you so much for every single person here today. God, I believe, Lord, that you are a God of compassion and love. Thank you so much for bearing our shame on the cross so that we can live victoriously and free in you. So, Lord, I just thank you for everyone that hears this, whether online or in the building today, that they will remember that they are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Thank you that freedom will prevail. It's in